we know that if you do X and do Y and do Z, it should add up to recovery. However, our lives are so much more complex, right? No two people with eating disorders are the same. One thing that we've learned from the science is that if you are underweight, weight restoration is a necessity. Welcome to Equip to Recover, where we explore the intersection of recovery stories and eating disorder science to show you that recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. I'm Jessica Flint, and today I'm joined with Christina Safran and Aaron Parks. Christina and Aaron are pioneers in the digital mental health space. Before the pandemic, they had a vision of a fully virtual eating disorder treatment center, which is now known as Equip. With coverage in all 50 states in America, they are paving a path to greater accessibility to treatment that works delivered at home. Christina Safran is the chief executive officer at Equip and previously founded Project Teal, a nonprofit with a mission to break down systemic and financial barriers to eating disorder healing. And Erin Parks is a researcher with a doctoral degree in clinical psychology. She is now the chief clinical officer and chief operating officer at Equip, helping improve access to evidence-based mental health care. I'm so excited for you to listen in as Christina, Erin, and I discuss ways to strengthen, deepen, and navigate your recovery from an eating disorder. So I want to give a big welcome for both of you. So nice to have you here today. Wonderful to be here with you. So Erin, let's start with you. You and Christina both are united in your shared mission to bring effective, affordable, and accessible care to everyone with eating disorders. And I'm curious to know how your career in academia and evidence-based eating disorder research has helped you make this a reality. I think one of the exciting things about starting in academia is that I got to see what works and what works well. And as researchers and clinicians, we improved and improved upon the treatment to find what would work for the most people. I think what was hard about being in academia, though, is that we just saw a few of the people with eating disorders. There are millions of people with eating disorders, but maybe a thousand or so are walking through university hospitals doors every year in order to get treatment. So this is where the marriage of Christina and I, Christina who had been meeting thousands and thousands and thousands of people seeking recovery, and me, someone who had been exposed to the clinicians and researchers who knew how to deliver excellent care, really came together. We're like, why are these two worlds, academia and then the real world of everyone who's suffering, why are those two worlds not meeting? Yeah, you see that so often. There's these papers and they go in like to these conferences and present all this information and it just stays in the silo. And it's like, how is this now bringing, like how are how can you bring this to into the general population? Like how can this actually serve people who need it? I feel like we also very much bonded over the fact that um, we'd always see each other at these academic conferences once every six months. And oftentimes academics like to talk about little, little pieces of like, how do we make this treatment just a little bit better for this population? How do we improve on this just a little bit? And Aaron and I always bonded and like, but you guys are missing the point. Like 80% of people aren't getting treatment. How do we have treatments that work? Like how do we disseminate what works? And that was something that consistently, whenever we would see one another, we would just start a conversation about that. Often too, like with research, it has to be controlled in some way. So they're only going to study people who have anorexia. And that tends to be the main subject matter in a lot of these. So how have you guys been able to start to like expand out and help other populations? And I mean, are you guys bringing research into Equip where you're 
doing these research studies in-house now to understand better ways to deliver these treatments. That is such a great point that in order for research to be most accurate, you need to have as few variables as possible. So that means that a lot of research studies would sometimes only look at one gender, would only look at one age group, would only look at one diagnosis, and then they would also try to exclude people who had other diagnoses. And Christina and I know that there are very few people with eating disorders that aren't also struggling with depression or anxiety or OCD. And so while the research is being done in a very prudent, accurate, effective way, we need to take the next step of making it generalizable for the most people. Yeah. And I think additionally, like we have a lot of good evidence about what works, right? We know that, you know, at a high level, two of the critical, critical components of recovery for everyone with an eating disorder are one, the importance of nutritional rehabilitation for a very long time. The thinking was, let's motivate you to want to eat, to want to recover, to want to like your body. And like, then we'll do the work once people are motivated. And we know that that doesn't work. You can't therapize a malnourished brain. Like there are real negative effects to being at a lower place and uh, weight wise than your body wants to be and being malnourished. It's going to spike up anxiety, depression, compulsivity, OCD, and eating disorder symptoms and behaviors. So that is critical. It's not sufficient. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And then two, this idea that eating disorders require you to fight your brain so many times every day. There are three meals. There are often three plus snacks. There's, you know, the every single second you're probably fighting urges to overexercise, to binge, to purge, to et cetera, et cetera. You're always fighting your brain. And so it's like not only ineffective, but frankly, kind of mean to ask people to do this alone. You really need people around you who can help you to fight that on a consistent basis. Um, that said, like our treatments don't work for everyone. Our best treatments result in full recovery for about 50% of the population. And so we really came together to say, it's not like you throw out the research, you take the core of what we know works, but you also have to make sure that you adapt it, you make it better, you continue to study it on a broad population. And we, we realized that, you know, there were gaps to doing that in academia when things did have to be so controlled, you're only looking at a certain population. So it's really how do we take what works? And then how do we continue to study it on this broader population and continue to make it even better? So it's not back to that earlier point of like, do you make stuff better? or Do you disseminate what works? It's like, it's both. You, you have to do both. I think also for parents or for adults with eating disorders, when they're looking for treatment, they care about the research. But what they care more about is, is this going to work for me? you feel like you almost have one shot to get it right. It is so effortful to find a treatment team and then the idea of having to change if it doesn't work. So there are several different treatments out there that have worked for people to get them better from an eating disorder. And one of the things that I think makes Equip really stand out is that we have partnered with payers to take care of you until you are better. And so you join us, you get this five-person treatment team. And if the modality of treatment we're providing, if what we're doing isn't working, we can pivot within our team. You don't need to go find a whole nother provider, drive to a different location. We have an entire team. Uh, we have hundreds of providers here and we will make sure that you get the treatment that works and we have contracted with your payer to take care of you until you are better. That's so cool because there's like such a fractured landscape where people go into residential because 
let's what you guys have mentioned earlier is like the weight restoration is an important part to be able to get to this nourishment level and have adequate nutrition. And people go think that the option is, well, I'm going to go to a residential. Okay, that's where because they're going to provide me all my meals and it's just going to be all timed perfectly. And then then they come out and then they have a hard time adjusting. And so I think that's something that is is a major gap there in in the care model. So what you guys are essentially doing is taking out that step of going to residential. So you're essentially doing this work. I mean, granted, some cases really do need medical stabilization and hospitalization, but a lot of people can probably do this work at home. Some of our patients are able to not go into residential and just start with a quip. And we have a lot of patients who join us after they've left residential. Because at the mm. end of the day, we all have to go home at some point. And so Equip is either here to help keep you at home. Uh, there's a lot of people who can't afford the, the luxury of time to be away from their job or their kids or their lives to go to residential. And so Equip can take care of you instead of. And additionally, Equip can be there for you when you get home because there are some people where that's the best decision for their family and we're here for them when it's time to return home. And you're right. No matter what, you know, if you go to residential, you're, you're going to have to come back. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people wanted to believe that you could go to treatment for a month and come out and you would be cured. But we know that these illnesses like recovery takes a really long time. Um, we know that the best evidence shows that once you get to a place of nutritional stabilization, your best chance of a strong and lasting recovery is staying with the same treatment team for six to 12 months. And in today's current insurance, industry, that's like near impossible to find. And to have somebody who understands both eating disorders and have you ever met somebody with just an eating disorder with anxiety, with depression, with OCD, and is not going to, in treating those comorbidities, accidentally reinforce the eating disorder. And so it's really, really necessary to have that treatment team to surround you as you're dealing with real life triggers, right? Because while, you know, facility-based care can be critical for some folks, it does kind of inoculate you from a lot of the pressures uh, of it, the joys and the terrors of life. And it's just not exactly akin to real life when you're coming home and you have the stress of work and school and family pressures and friend pressures, and you need to be equipped to deal with that in real life. And so you need to have a team around you to help you through that transition. Yeah, definitely. And to be able to kind of have the flexibility, it sounds like there where it's, and I think there's this trust factor, like when you're doing such a, a difficult thing, like going through the recovery process, to know that people are going to be there for you can, can really matter in, in not having just like, hey, I, I bonded with these people and then I'm done. You know, it, it, I think that can really uh, create a, a rupture essentially like in, in having to repair that and being able to have this consistent, flexible team with you allows that trust to be built. Yeah, I think it's trust and accountability, right? Um, like it is really, really hard and it continues to be hard for a while. And I think it's so important to have folks that are going to hold you accountable for staying well. And, you know, when you go through those really hard moments of like, there were so many times when I went back to school and, you know, it felt like every single person in my high school was on a diet or trying some new like juice fast or like practicing high intensity interval training every day, you know, and just to, to say no to those pressures. And it gave me a lot of like, 
pride to be able to come back to my treatment team and be like, hey, this was really, really hard. And I like ate the goddamn sandwich anyway. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, I think you, you kind of need that in recovery. I like what you said, Jessica, though, about and it's something I haven't thought a ton about is the trauma of saying goodbye when your treatment isn't at home. And it's wonderful. I mean, I, we've all heard of people. I mean, Christina, you've made, you made some great friends in treatment and yet then you had to say goodbye to them. And that's especially at such a vulnerable time in your recovery. And so a big part of Equip is how can you start making these meaningful relationships but like in your life that will still be there that aren't limited to the environment of recovery? They're tied to the rec- environment of home. So this could be auditioning for the school play. This can be trying out for soccer. This can be getting involved in the choir so that you can start making these meaningful relationships, which are I mean, frankly, the whole reason we recover, right, is so that we can enjoy our life and enjoy these relationships. I'm so glad you've said that. Yeah, I often think about the fact that, you know, I talk about when I was in and out of treatment centers um, my freshman year of high school, like, I really loved it. And I remember when I would come back, like, I had multiple times that I had dreams that I was still in treatment and I would wake up crying because I wasn't there. Like, I missed my peers from treatment. I missed my treatment team so much. And it did feel like, and it was kind of true, that the only way to ever see them again was to relapse and go back. Um, And it, there are some real negative consequences to that. And so, yeah, how do we take that power of community and trust and support and not have it be that your only way to get that back is, is to relapse? So I'm curious, how does the like structure of this work? Because you know, I went to an IOP. I went to the UCSD IOP in its opening year. I, you know, I had to go set hours every day and, you know, they had the curriculum there. Is is Equip a very structured program where you're on the screen from 4 to 8 p.m.? That is a, that's a great question. And I think a lot of people do get confused. Like, are you a virtual IOP? Because there are more virtual IOPs you can attend. And we are intentionally not a virtual IOP. What that means is that we are not asking you to sit on your computer for three hours a day, three to five days a week, because we want you out there living your life. What you do on the screen, be it on your phone or on your computer, is you meet with all of your providers. So you have a full provider team. You have a dietitian who can help with everything from challenge foods to exposures to meal planning. You have a therapist that can help you with individual therapy and family therapy. You have a peer mentor. Uh, Christine will say more about that in a second. This is someone who's in recovery from an eating disorder. A family mentor. So that's someone for your loved one or your parent. So someone who has already helped their loved one through an eating disorder and is there to help your loved one. Last but not least, a medical provider. So this can be medication management for people who need to see a psychiatrist, but it can also be a pediatrician, a PCP, an adolescent medicine attending, people who are going to make sure that you stay medically stable. What makes this unique is that all these people are full-time employees of Equip. They are on the same page. They are your team dedicated to you for however long it takes till you are enjoying life to the fullest. You meet virtually, but we also know, I, I always bring my best self to sessions, right? Like I, even if I'm going to the dentist and they ask, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm fine, right? So we know that life happens outside of the one hour that you're in a session with your therapist or the hour that you're in a session with your dietitian. So we also have between session messaging where you can reach out to your team and say, hey, I'm struggling with this, or I'm going on a camping trip. What should I pack for a snack? And reach out and get real-time advice. 
Yeah. And I love, Aaron, that you talk about often like a session doesn't need to be an hour, right? Like it can be 15 minutes when you're in the middle of a freak out and you just really need to connect with somebody. Like the whole goal is we want you to build a life worth living outside of your eating disorder. We want there to be real reasons to continue on this recovery journey. And so we want people to be in school, in work, in relationships, building friendships, building hobbies, and like really intentionally did not want people sitting in front of the computer screen for four hours a day. That is antithetical to building a life worth living. And we want you to have the support in the moment when you need it. We know that that doesn't happen at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday, but rather all the time. And so the idea is like, how do we deliver just the right amount of support when you need it in the moment, and then really encourage you to go out and build that life worth living. And part of what helps us to do that is that we are tracking symptoms and behaviors throughout such that it's not linear as as you know, and so life happens, something gets exacerbated, and you have a really hard week, we can you can see us, you know, eight hours in the in that week, um, if you need it. But the idea again, is like build that life worth living. I love that. Just reminds me of like server capacity. I know not everybody's going to understand that, but there's like <laughs> server loads, you know, and it's like, we're loaded and then you, then you need it and you can like, yeah, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're talking to a podcaster, server capacity. <laughs> I'm like, like, probably like 5% of the people are going to even know what that means. But anyway, um, yeah. I'm curious too about the, is a big thing with seeing a dietitian is getting weighed. And, and I know there's some technologies now with numberless scales. Like, do you how does that work for the actual weigh-in process? Do you guys do away with that? or? Well, it's kind of a two-part answer. So part one is we're meeting people where they're at. We know for people on weight restoration how important it is to get probably about two weights per week to see if you're making the necessary progress. Because we know that until there's full weight restoration, you're still going to have really loud eating disorder voices and depression and anxiety. And there's different ways to go about it. So sometimes you weigh yourself and report your own weight. Sometimes your loved one weighs you and reports the weight for you. Sometimes you see the weight, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you go into a doctor's office or a student health center to get weighed. So we really meet people where they're at. That being said, there has been so much debate in the field. So like any other field, eating disorders have plenty of things where the field is divided in half. Half the field thinks you should always see your weight. Half the field thinks you should never see your weight. Um, so we're doing a study on it. So we're trying to learn more about what happens when people know their weight or don't know their weight and how it impacts their progression. But it is important for us as medical providers that if you're on weight restoration, we do get weights about twice a week. I love that you guys get to do all this internal research. That's so cool. <laughs> it has been one of the most fun parts about it. I'm coming from academia where you'd have to like, I want to study this in five years. And so then you spend like a year writing a grant and then you wait to see if it gets funded and then it finally gets, no, we get to just do research in real time. Uh, we get IRB approval. We get permission from our patients in order to do the research. And we've been publishing the research as we go. This is not just for us to know. We want the whole world to be benefiting and then you mentioned pure, the pure mentorship model. And I've heard Christina say this is like the secret sauce. So let's, let's talk about the secret sauce. <laughs> secret sauce. Yes. Uh, love the secret sauce. Um, yeah. I mean, look, eating disorder recovery is really, really, really hard. It is ambivalence at best. I often describe my own recovery process as like actively hating myself for a year and having to do the very thing that I fear most every day, multiple times a day, while frankly, not having anyone who I knew who was recovered while having people tell me, you don't recover from this. It's not possible. Um, it, it felt like not worth all the hard work, right? And so I think 
just having somebody who one can be this beacon of hope and a real role model of like, okay, this is possible. It is possible to build a life worth living outside of your eating disorder. And then just somebody who like gets it. People who've been there can push you in a way that nobody else can, who can really, really understand commiserate. Like I get how hard this is. I get how much this sucks and keep going. It is possible. It is worth it. Nobody ever regrets recovering. Um, That is so invaluable in keeping folks engaged. And again, it's a long process and that continued sustained engagement. I think recovering from an eating disorder is a bit of like taking a blind leap of faith. Um, I I think like nobody is necessarily ready to recover from their eating disorder. And I think when you're not, when you don't necessarily see it or believe it for yourself, people who've been there can sort of guide the way and and show you the light. And it's the same thing for family members. I think caring for anybody with an ill, a loved one with an illness is is challenging and taxing. Um, certainly for a mental illness, it's even more so. And then certainly for an eating disorder where, again, a core part of it is not knowing how sick you are, not wanting to get better. Your loved one is by definition like fighting you a lot of the times, especially adolescents who almost never really want to recover at the beginning. And so it is really, really challenging. And then additionally, unfortunately, we're trying to chip away at this, but it's still one of the few illnesses in which it's okay to blame the parents um, and people do. And so you're not getting that sympathy support that you normally would if your child had any other illness. And frankly, you're probably getting a lot of blame and shame. And so it is really, really, really hard. And again, having a parent who can commiserate, who can say, I totally get how much this sucks and how much, you know, at certain times you want to like throw your loved one out the window. Like that is normal. That is okay. And keep going. It's possible. It's worth it. It just, you know, treat, we talk a lot about treatments that feel good being different than treatments that work. And Aaron can talk beautifully about that. I think what we've also learned is if they're too hard that people don't engage in them, then they're not going to work. Right. (laughs) So you got to find that like nice balance. And I think this is the beauty of marrying the clinical science with the lived experience to really create something very powerful. We know that if you do X and do Y and do Z, it should add up to recovery. However, our lives are so much more complex, right? No two people with eating disorders are the same. One thing that we've learned from the science is that if you are underweight, weight restoration is a necessity. So we know that from the science. Now the how to do weight restoration, that's kind of where the art and the lived experience comes in. For some, when we're talking about, let's talk about teenagers here. For some, having their parent just take over so that they don't have to think about it anymore. It's like, okay, you... I know you don't want your parent to take over, but you are so relieved to not have to think, what should I eat for breakfast? What should I eat for lunch? What should I eat for dinner? Having the eating disorder voice yell at you. Some people, that is sufficient, just having the parent take over. For other people, you need to have your parent like a cocoon, rubbing your back, watching TV with you. For other people, they're going to need their parents to set limits and have external carrots, like you only get your phone after you finish the meal, or you only get to go to soccer practice if you've properly nourished first. So the how of how you enact the science of getting all the nutrition and doing weight restoration, that how is the art. It's the art that clinicians are great at, but it's also the art that people with lived experience are great at. It seems like this model would work really well for a very engaged family. I'm just curious about like when someone's family is pretty disengaged or they're not really supportive of of their recovery. Maybe they're thinking that the child's just – 
you know, acting out or or being manipulative or just, you know, doing this to spite them and, and things like that. Because, of course, all these egos come in. It's just like teenage ego, adult ego. It's everywhere. Uh, so how do you guys bring them together? I mean, I'm sure you probably have some great stories of families coming together at the same time, families really navigating some rough waters. And I'm, I'm curious to know, like, maybe how you can foresee this model helping people who who don't have supportive families, how, how would they be able to work through through this system? I think the thing that's really interesting is that I'd say most families initially think they're a bad fit for this. First, the teenager is always like, no, not a good idea. <laughs> I'd say 100% of the time. But even the parents, more often than not, are like, oh, I'm not so sure. Sometimes it's because the parents like, nope, I think my kid should be independent and do it themselves. But more often than not, the parents like, I'm afraid I'm going to make it worse. I'm mm. afraid that I'm already part of the problem. And then you're right. There's definitely cases where there's parents who have multiple jobs, parents who have other sick kids to take care of, parents who have eating disorders themselves. What we've learned, though, is the common denominator is the amount of love that exists between all of these people and that they want to move forward. So sometimes that means a very traditional looking FBT where the parents are able to take over control of the meal and help their child through it. But sometimes it doesn't look like that. And it might be individual therapy for the teenager, but at the exact same time, the parents are getting therapy to help better understand what their child is going through. I love that. And, you know, the only thing I would add is, you know, we very much believe in a chosen family philosophy. So that can look really different for everyone. We certainly have worked with two-parent households. We work with a lot of one-parent households. We work with foster parents, with grandparents, with partners, with friends. Like really it is this, it goes back to this idea that this is a really hard illness to fight alone when you're fighting your brain many times a day and you really need support to help you do that. We're going to help you to equip your chosen family to help you throughout this process. The other thing is that while families don't cause eating disorders, chosen family or otherwise, they're absolutely doing things that reinforce the eating disorder. One, when your loved one is in crisis, you're not your best self. And two, we all grew up in this crappy diet culture. Um, it is, you know, the water that we swim in, unfortunately. And a lot of families do come to this with their own crap. And so many people would say, like, then they can't do this treatment. And it's actually the complete opposite. Like, they're the ones who need to do this treatment more than anything because such a huge part of getting folks to a strong and lasting recovery is equipping them to fight back to diet culture for the rest of their life. That is unfortunately real life that they're going to enter. And we know that folks are most inoculated against that if their community is also rowing in the same boat against diet culture with them. And so how we do that is approach it from this place of no shame, no blame, lots of self-compassion and understanding like this makes sense. This is not your fault. We all grew up in this. And in order to help your loved one really get to a good place of recovery, this has to change. And I think families doing that work together and really hearing from others again, like I was that parent who was on diets and constantly trying to lose weight and over-exercising. Like I was that person. And I did have to look at myself in the mirror and say, you know, if I really want my loved one to recover, this is what's going to need to happen. And I, I think the transformation that can occur in an entire family system, chosen or otherwise, is some of the most beautiful work that 
we do that I am sure equips people for that strong and lasting recovery. Mm. Connection is what ultimately heals, right? So it sounds like you're like creating so many nodes of connection with, you know, within the family, with the providers, with the peer mentors, and it just, it creates that environment for, for growth and it's not just about what's going to work today or tomorrow. It's this long-term thinking about sustained recovery. And so, yes, what all of us want in the moment is, hey, doctor, can you just fix my kiddo? And I'm going to stay <laughs> over here. But if we want sustained recovery, we got to bring everybody along. And that includes tackling the diet culture in the household or attacking the avoidance in the household or whatever needs to be tackled. So right now you guys see kids, I mean, all down to six years old, which is just, that's just boop, heartbroken. <laughs> wow. That's so from six to, to 24. So all, all the way into college. And I'm curious to see if there's a difference in people that, uh, to patients that are, you know, in college versus at home. And if you guys have plans to expand out to, to adults, to people who are beyond 24, who maybe don't have a parent anymore that would be part of this model, and what would that look like? Would it be a loved one, like a, a partner or a husband or a boyfriend, a girlfriend? Right now, yeah, as you said, we have kids as young as six and adults up to age 24. And how we meet a six-year-old where they're at versus a 16-year-old versus a 24-year-old is very different. The commonality is that we prioritize how can we get 2% better? How can we get 5% better? We don't want to tread water. We want to keep getting a little bit better, a little bit better. We want to keep with weight restoration if that's important. We want to keep reducing symptoms and we want to help people build community and rediscover joy. So that's true whether you're six or whether you're 24. But you're right. The older you get, you start involving your parents in different ways. And you also have a wider variety of people who are important in your life. We certainly have six, seven, eight-year-olds who have grandparents involved, aunts and uncles involved. As kids get older, this is where we see coaches involved, roommates, college mental health or college health services. There are other people that start getting involved as they get older. As to the question about over 24, ask us again soon. Uh, we are very eager to make sure everyone has access to awesome eating disorder care, care that is affordable, care that works, care that sticks with them for a long time and can see them through the different stages of life. So ask us again. It's going to be my cheeky answer. I love that. <laughs> Ooh, in suspense. <laughs> and I think in general, the, the treatment for everyone of all ages is highly individualized. So again, like the, the chassis is the same, those two key components of nutritional rehabilitation and support is necessary. And how that looks is really different for every single person. And frankly, I don't think we're ever just using the FBT approach because everyone has comorbid anxiety and depression and OCD and PTSD. And so like we are filling that in. We are understanding what are your comorbidities? What are your unique goals? What else are you struggling with medically? And like we are combining all of that to create an individualized evidence-based treatment program for every single family who comes through our doors. And that'll be no different with the adult program. And you guys have seen like thousands and thousands of families over the years, right? Can we like with the work that you've done, Erin and and Christina? In in your opinion, what are the best ways for someone to support a loved one going through an eating disorder? I think one of the best ways to support someone is to educate yourself. There's a lot of accounts out there of people who have lived experience. Uh, listen to people with lived experience about what was helpful, what wasn't helpful. I think another thing is to bring hope. And to keep being there to push someone to keep getting better. You're going to hear your loved one say, I think this is good enough. 
And it's okay to not agree with them and say like, no, 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 no. Like, let's keep going to treatment. Let's keep going to therapy. How can I support you? And sometimes supporting means making a meal. Sometimes it means driving them to an appointment. Sometimes it means being involved in treatment. So there's a lot of different ways to support. I absolutely love that. And I think it's so important just to underscore like, because of what we know about how challenging eating disorders are and recovery being ambivalence at best and a part of the illness being not knowing how sick you are, you're going to face a lot of resistance. So don't just think because somebody says, I'm fine, that's, you know, I'm not struggling uh, to accept it at face value. Really educate yourself on what this means and that you need, you might need to be a little bit persistent. And frankly, like you might need to get somebody who's even closer to the person involved, somebody who's living with them, whether that's a family member, whether that's a teacher at school. Um, I promise they will thank you later. um, And it may save their lives because these things get really deadly really, really quickly. And then as Aaron said, just continuing to be there as a support person, letting the person know that you know this is a long journey, you know it's nonlinear, and you're going to continue to support them. And I think continuing to remind them of what you miss about them as a human. You know, when you have an eating disorder, so much of your spark and personality is taken away. And so instead of focusing on, I'm really worried that you're like going to the gym every day, or I'm really worried that you're like only eating salads, like you're smiling less. You're like coming to hang out less. You're cracking less jokes. Like remind them of the other aspects of them that are, you know, being lost with the eating disorder and just be a continual reminder of that real hope for recovery. Oh, it's been so great talking with you. And I just want to wrap it up here with this filling in the blank of of these sentences here. And I just want you to finish the statement with your first thought, your gut reaction, and what, what just feels right for you. So we'll start with connection. Connection is? Connection is being seen and seeing. Connection is knowing you're a part of something larger than yourself. Body image is? Body image is something to always try to improve. Body image is how you relate to, value, and take care of your physical being. Diet culture is? Shitty. Can I say that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. Tell it like it is. Yeah, it's shitty. The unfortunate water we swim in that normalizes glorifying thinness and pathologizing fatness and makes recovery really hard for a lot of people. Recovery is? A hundred percent possible. Recovery is when you have brain space and energy for way more important things than food and your body. How can all the listeners stay in touch with you and find out more about Equip? You can visit us at our website, which is E-Q-U-I-P, equip.health. You can find information there on our classes and groups, how to become a patient at Equip, how to help someone that you care about get treatment. And then also, I think there's over 100 now just articles and videos. So if you have someone going through an eating disorder and just want to educate yourself more, plenty of free materials there to learn from. Well, I want to thank you both so much for your wisdom, your healing work, and your expertise that you brought today. And it's just been a real pleasure. What you're doing is making a big difference. We're living in a moment in time where eating disorders are increasing in their prevalency and far too many people are slipping through the cracks. So thank you so much for building a virtual treatment center like Equip and making eating disorder recovery treatment more equitable and accessible. Thanks for having us.
Thank you for listening to Equip to Recover. Remember, recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. Find out more about Equip and how you can access treatment that works over at equip.health.